Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I speak to Dr. Chris Dodson, an orthopedic and board certified sports medicine surgeon who is the head team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers and the head orthopedic surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm always very grateful to all the guests who come on the show to talk shop and share their valuable insights, but this week's guest, Dr. Dodson, gave up some time whilst he was on a family vacation. Amongst what you're going to hear is a very crazy schedule, so big thank you to him in advance. If you're regularly tuning into the show and you haven't subscribed already, then please do so to encourage the success of the podcast, which we greatly appreciate. Anyway, here's the conversation between myself and Dr. Chris Dodson. Dr. Chris Dodson, thank you so much for giving up your time and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, Just to begin with, um, could you give the listeners a little bit of context as to what your background has been and from where you kind of trained through to how you got to your current position in your career now? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I'm a, a sports medicine surgeon at the Rothman Institute based in Philadelphia. Um, I uh, did my undergrad in medical training at Brown University. I then did a uh, residency in orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Manhattan. Uh, that was five years. I, did, I then did one more additional year of training in sports medicine surgery and shoulder surgery uh, at the uh, special surgery as well. And then I've been in practice at the Roth Institute uh, since 2009. Brilliant. And um, I think most of the listeners should be fairly well familiar with the the general concept of what an orthopedic surgeon is and what they do. Could you just to kind of describe and tell us a little bit about your role as a physician within within the sports teams professionally? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am uh, one of the uh, team doctors for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I'm co-head of orthopedic surgery along with one of my partners, and then I'm also the head team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers. So uh, that keeps me busy and, uh, it's, and both teams are amazing to work with. And it's been, uh, definitely challenging, but a lot of fun. And how, how do you kind of split your time between, you know, orthopedic surgery and then being in both those professional organizations in sport? Yeah, it's definitely at times a little bit challenging. So basically, my, my typical week looks like I see patients for consultation three days a week. I perform surgery two days a week. And then uh, certainly uh, during the basketball season, you know, anywhere from two to three games a week, those are night games. I usually am there. I cover about 90% of the games. I do have partners who help me cover those. And then during football season, um, early in the season, I cover most of the home games uh, and and attend a training room once a week throughout the season. My partner has a more significant role. He goes to every game and every training room. um, And so uh, he has definitely more of the brunt of that in football. But that's kind of how I split my time. Uh, with my practice, uh, which, you know, it certainly is challenging. Uh, it's very busy. Um, but I think working with those teams actually makes me a better um, surgeon and certainly a better doctor. And I think it helps me with my private practice. And so I, uh, it's very stimulating. Uh, it requires a lot of thought. And so it's something I really enjoy. And, and, and like I said, I think it makes me a better doctor. Do you think that's because the being in sport and, and the sort of nature of professional sport and being cutting edge, does that then sort of transcend down to when you see, um, you know, regular people who are playing sport or need um, routine orthopedic procedures? Absolutely. You know, the reality is, is that, I mean, I see, you know, this is good or bad, depends how you look on it. I mean, I'm starting to see a lot of significant injuries, particularly in young athletes in the high school and collegiate level. And I think they're very similar injuries that we see professionally. I think my experience with dealing with them, um, with the professional athletes and quite frankly, vice versa, sometimes with my amateur high school inclusion athletes, or even weekend warriors, seeing the spectrum of pathology that I see, um, it helps, uh, it helps understand treatment options, 
Um, and I would say even across the professional teams, there's a lot of cross pollination. We'll see a, a player in the basketball world have an injury and, and I have a sense of a return to play or treatment options for that player. Then I might see the same injury in a football player and can, and can you know, uh, draw on my experience with other player of, of what to do and how we can manage it. So, um, you know, that I think there's a lot of cross pollination amongst, amongst it all, you know. And have you seen a kind of trend in uh, perhaps youth athletes to getting overuse injuries like is being kind of talked about a lot in wider sports medicine? Are you seeing that in, in your area? I don't see a ton of the overuse stuff because um, a lot of the overuse stuff per se sometimes is more non-operative. And a lot of times, you know, I get sort of funneled patients um, who need surgery. I, I would say that, um, you know, for example, anterior ligament injuries um, I, I played uh, soccer in college and my whole life. And, you know, I'm still not sure why this is, but I don't remember anyone when I was growing up tearing their ACL. Um, and I don't remember anyone in college when I played soccer tearing their ACL. And I can tell you that I'm doing now approximately 140 ACL reconstructions a year. So there is something that has dramatically changed. And I would think that that's, those are the injuries that we see more now. Uh, and some of them with other associated concomitant pathology that are significant injuries in 15, 16, 17, eight-year-old athletes. Um, and so that that's the part of it I think really has surprised me a little bit. And I, I know I'm getting a, you know, um, I'm a tertiary referrals source for a lot of these, but it's still surprising. I see the same thing in shoulder too. I see young athletes with significant shoulder injuries at a young age um, that I don't remember seeing either when I was growing up or certainly early in my practice. Mm. And obviously, you know, uh, with like um, anterior cruciate ligament in injuries, um, especially in soccer and in America where the female game has really exploded increasingly, um, you know, you could say there's increased participation, but is there kind of, you know, more pressing things that you, you see trends with for why that causation is happening? Because participation is quite easy, isn't it? Because the more people that play sport, the more people get injured. But within that, is there, is there more, is there a better trajectory of why you're seeing that? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. So I think, yeah, to your first point, I think the denominator is much higher, right? So more people play sports, you know, everyone sort of plays sports nowadays. I think that's part of it. I do think that the, um, I do think that the level of competition and the amount of playing also leads to injuries. You know, I think a lot of athletes now are younger, train harder or, or stronger or bigger. And I think a lot of ways it's helpful, but I think also it predisposes them you know, maybe to more injury. Um, because of just their their exposure and how much they're playing and how much they're training. You know, I do think that um, particularly with female soccer players, we've seen data that suggests that, you know, a preventive program uh, does reduce the risk. And so that's something I try and encourage um, people to do. You know, unfortunately, certainly by the time they see me, it's probably too late a lot of times because they were injured. But to try and prevent the other side from getting injured, which is something we worry about, I think we've tried to get a better sense of, um, of um, you know, trying to do a maintenance program. I'll also say that one thing that I, I'm proud of at our institute that we've done that we were one of the early practices to do is to try and establish return to play testing. So early in my practice, you know, around six months, seven months uh, after surgery, I would just tell the athlete, okay, I think you're good to play with no real objective criteria. And it was my work with some of the professional athletes where we would do these very extensive workups and these very um, sophisticated analysis of when they were ready to play, oftentimes at eight, nine, 10, 11 months. And I said to myself, why am I, why are we so specific with pro athletes, you know, who maybe have more time to rehab, who have great genetics, you know, who have the, all the resources. And yet my high school and collegiate athletes were just kind of thrown out there. And so one thing that we've done is we've, we've created a return to play test that my you know athletes have to pass in my practice um, that to make sure that we think they're ready to play. 
And, you know, we've definitely pushed back the return to play timeline a little bit more to be more consistent with what we've seen in the high level athletes. And I think overall, I've been, we've been happy uh, and think that we can maybe prevent some re-injury. Uh, we don't have the data yet to show that, but we're tracking it. You know, several of us in our practice are looking at all return to play data. Yeah. With ACL, that's really common, actually, especially with the knee stuff. Um, do you have an extensive battery that you've been able to use for the upper limb? Because I know it's a little bit harder with, for example, the shoulder to to mimic the approach of the ACL stuff. Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, we do not. We've talked about it and trying to figure out a way to do it. It's a little bit less clean, so to speak, than the knee. Um, so we, we don't have, um, you know, unfortunately, it's still old fashioned. We're kind of going by timeline, you know, which isn't really sophisticated. Yeah. Is there anything you're kind of looking at as a way to inform the shoulder return to play in addition to the healing timeframes? Is there any kind of like performance things that you, I know you can't always be as specific with the upper limb, but is there things that you're looking for athletes to be able to do um, in that pathway? Yeah, I think we're, you know, one thing we try and do is, um, you know, look at basically strength. Um, I can tell you that with uh, the pro athletes that I've done short surgeries on, you know, we have dynamometer testing where we try and assess objective measures of strength um, you know, in, in the cuff specifically, um, to, uh, to, to evaluate the return to play. And then unfortunately it's a little bit subjective. I mean, the, the concept of apprehension, particularly in labral repairs, uh, is critical preoperatively. And so we try and you know, talk to the athlete about how they feel their shoulder is in space and, and how they, um, are they apprehensive certain positions. Um, and that's pretty much unfortunately it. Um, I mean, the therapists that I work with are much more, as you guys are much more sophisticated than, than us surgeons about that stuff. And so they have some other tests that they use. And, and I usually go a lot by what the physical therapist says, um, you know, at a certain timeline, because grossly for me, I'm just looking at strength and range of motion. Um, but that, that's pretty much right now what we have. I, I think it's definitely an area that we, we can delve into more. I think it's probably, I was going to ask this question later, but I think it's probably a good time to ask you now. Um, from a, from a physio or physical therapy perspective, um, I'm really interested to know, is there, is there anything you wish, um, therapists knew when they were, when they were rehabbing your athletes or, is there any ways you think that therapists could improve in how they collaborate with you um, in treating athletes? Yeah. So I, I think that, um, you know, I'm first and foremost, very lucky. I have several physical therapists that I work with that are truly world-class uh, specifically with the teams that make, make my life a lot easier. I think that, um, you know, when we take care of the lead athlete, the physical therapist oftentimes will be present during the surgery. So we'll have an in-depth understanding of what we're dealing with. I think in the, in the, when I'm dealing with my more community athletes, or sometimes collegiate athletes um, who may come in and out of town. Uh, I, I always try and talk to them directly because I want them to understand exactly what was done. You know, as you know, you know, someone can say, oh, I had my rotator cuff repaired. Well, that could have been a partial tear that was 50% involved that you put one anchor. Someone else can say, I had my rotator cuff repaired. It could have been a five anchor repair. That was a four centimeter retracted tear. Those are not the same injuries, right? So a, a two anchor slap repair is not a eight anchor pain labor repair. So I think just understanding the differences of even though they're both quote labor repairs or both quote rotator cuff repairs, understanding the, the difference is critical because how you're going to rehab them and expectations uh, is critical. So I think trying to, I would encourage all physical therapists if they're taking care of a, of an athlete's head surgery. Uh, and I know I never mind this, just reach out to the surgeon exactly and say, what, you know, what were you dealing with intraoperatively? Any concerns? Was there any cartilage damage? I think, you know, in the knee specifically understanding the, you know, the difference between having a chondral injury and not having a chondral injury is a significant factor as far as pain postoperatively, swelling postoperatively. And so, you know, I'll sometimes have a, a patient struggling with swelling and I'll have to remind the therapist, look, they have a grade four lesion that we saw when we did their ACL. This is going to be normal. 
let's not worry about something else going on versus if someone had no contra pathology and a persistent swelling, I'd probably be a little more concerned. So I think just the details of what was done, what what was found intraoperatively is to me critical as far as, you know, guiding the rehab for these for these athletes. Yeah, I guess, like you said, the devil's in the detail, isn't it? And I guess uh, from a therapist's point of view, perhaps not in pro sport, in a typical clinic, they could perhaps risk looking at the post-op um, protocol as simplistic and not understanding how one procedure is going to really change how aggressively they can rehabilitate it. That's exactly right. And it's challenging. You know, we have, yeah, you know, it's challenging. We, you know, I have, for every surgery I do, I have a post-operative protocol that we've, uh, that, you know, in, in conjunction with my, my PA, my, my, uh, my clinical assistant and some therapists, we've tried to give guidelines, but it's hard to be so specific for every patient, right? I mean, we have like an ACL reconstruction protocol. I have like an ACL, MCL reconstruction protocol, but it's hard to have one that has like, you know, with a meniscus repair or with chondral lesions or, you know, it's hard to get that specific. So I think just um, communication, like, you know, is, is critical. Yeah. And I guess with pro sport, that's a lot easier because those channels are uh, a lot more established. So you can have those conversations frequently and as and when you need them, which you can't always as easily with a, a routine orthopedic patient. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, for when we operate on uh, any of our players, uh, our, our trainer or and or therapist are actually in surgery, you know, watching. So they have a first, uh, you know, a, a, you know, firsthand view of what was going on. And then if it's from another team, and we always send photos, and uh, you know, the player gets their own pictures and a disc with, you know, we're, we're pretty specific at what they can have access to, so that they know, um, you know, what exactly we did. I can give an example. I operated on a, a football player who's on an NFL at a different team, and you know, his therapist called me up, and we went over specifically what was done, how many anchors, et cetera, et cetera. So you had a really good understanding of how to rehab them. And that that's just a lot easier to do um, in that situation. It's more challenging to do um, in, in, you know, in, in a different setting, you know, when you're talking about, you know, high school collegiate or uh, weekend warrior athletes. But you know what? It's not impossible. And I, I always, um, any collegiate athlete I operate on, you know, especially one that's not from where, you know, in Philadelphia or the Philadelphia region, I make sure I give my email. I just say, tell your trainer or your therapist just to email me so you know exactly what's going on. Uh, can communicate directly when you're working with a, a pro team obviously you're the expert on the surgery and the the pt is going to come in perhaps pre-surgery or after surgery in the rehab when there's situations where a graft type or you know a surgical procedural type has to be decided on um do you always lead that decision or does the does the pt or the director of the rehab also have a conversation before it's decided with you yeah, you know, that's uh, a great question. I mean, I just feel like as, as a surgeon, it's my role to lead that discussion. So I, um, unfortunately, am a little dogmatic in certain situations where I just say, I think this is what we should do, what I think works the best and try and provide some context to it. Usually, hopefully some, um, you know, academic uh, support, uh, what's been demonstrated in literature and also some personal experience. But I feel like it's usually our role to to kind of lead the discussion of what we think is best. And the therapists have been supportive of that and understand that. Um, and then, you know, afterwards when we talk about rehab, you know, it's definitely a, um, I mean, I think the therapists have the most important role, quite frankly, in that setting. Uh, and I think that um, just communication and, and, and um, you know, a lot of times the therapists are so good that, that once, if you do a reasonably good job um, in the surgery, I always joke, I mean, the therapists make you look good. I always tell the patients, other therapists can actually make it look good, you know, because they, they kind of can get a sense of what's going on postoperatively and, and how to push and respond to the patient. You know, again, I may see you, if I do an ACR construction on an athlete, I'm seeing them at two weeks post-op, six weeks post-op, three months, six months, and nine months. You know, what is that? Five times. Your therapist is seeing you two, three times a week 
for five for six months, you know, so they definitely have a better understanding of what's going on at that time frame. Um, but, you know, as far as the surgery and what's been going to get done, I think that's our role to really kind of lead that discussion and kind of give our advice of what we think is best. When you go into these teams, are you there more in a, excuse my ignorance, are you, are you there more in a kind of emergency capacity for, um, for, for trauma as and when it happens and for the operative stuff? Or do you, do you kind of check in regularly to review perhaps non, uh, non-operative um, injuries as well? Oh yeah. So um, as a team physician, you have to, you have to deal with all the injuries, operative and operative. So, you know, certainly, you know, in the basketball uh, world, you know, with, I usually just see the, any player the night of the game um, to kind of check if there's any injuries. Sometimes if there's an injury uh, a game, I might see them the next day in the office, but a lot of times we'll sort of see stuff that the, the, uh, the day of the game um, in, in the football world, you know, we uh, have training room twice a week where we're checking in and, you know, um, we, we will see, uh, all all injuries that are musculoskeletal, so operative and operative. Um, certainly, some of the non-operative stuff, the physical therapist and the trainers of the team are really guiding the treatment, and we just kind of check in and see how they're doing. But it's certainly our responsibility to be aware of everything and, and help guide, um, you know, when to return to play and that kind of thing. Yeah, so you're you're at hand as well for them. Do the players tend to, um, if it was like a small um, a small little uh, a niggle of an injury, do they tend to check in with the PTs first? because of how much time they're at the club and then come to you for, for consult as well, or. I, I, absolutely. So the, you know, the remember that the, the ther- as you know, the therapists and trainers are there every day and they see them all the time. So, you know, there's certainly some nicks and bruises that I'm, we may never see that like the therapists are more than, or the trainers are more than help, more than capable of taking care of it. And then, you know, every now and then they'll say, look, do you want to see doc or they'll, they'll oftentimes, you know, our, our trainers and therapists are so fantastic. They just know, look, I just want doc to check in on this, make sure we're, we're in the a good spot with this problem. And, um, you know, for some of the overuse or some of the even traumatic stuff that's non-operative, hamstring strains, high ankle sprains, et cetera. Um, and then certainly, you know, anything that needs an MRI, you know, that's musculoskeletal, you know, we, we review every MRI, you know, I discuss every MRI finding with every, with the player and, uh, and that's, that's non-operative stuff as well is operative. So, um, that's kind of our role there. And I'm, I'm more familiar with this in the UK than I am, uh, in the States, but are you involved as a doctor with the the purchasing of players and assessing them before a team commits to buying a player? Absolutely. So uh, for, for both teams, there, there are combines uh, that we call that are, um, you know, before the season starts. Um, and those are prospective uh, athletes who are going to enter the league. So there's an NBA combine, an NFL combine. And so uh, I, I attend both combines um, to assess, you know, to look at athletes, to examine them. Uh, we'll look at MRIs um, to, you know, for injuries or injury history they've had. So, and then, you know, we, we um, you know, ultimately we'll sit down with the uh, team's management and go over uh, players that they may want to acquire or want to come to the team and just give our assessment about their uh, musculoskeletal background. It's also done medically, I would say more like internal medicine. And we have internal medicine doctors who do that as well. They are in charge of of that aspect of the labs they may have gotten, heart and lungs. But we're just, you know, my, me and my partners are in charge of, the musculoskeletal evaluation. So you go more and you dive more into the specifics of previous injuries and what do those look like now in real time? Exactly right. Some guys have no injuries. Some guys have had surgeries. We just talk about, you know, assessment. Uh, and, and really a lot of times our goal is to make sure that, you know, we, you know, sometimes there's some angst amongst the players, and the agents of, of this, and are we trying to find reasons not to sign them? I mean, I always think that we're, we're a doctor first and you know, sometimes we'll see things that with the player that go, look, you know, this is might be an issue. You might want to look into this. 
because um, what we see in MRI is a little bit concerning and try and guide them and help them through the process a little bit, um, you know, as far as like, you know, issues they may have in the future or surgery that was done in the past. I mean, by and large, the guys have gotten such great care that many things they've had fixed surgically look great, but sometimes we'll see issues and just try and communicate with them. So um, that's, that's really our role. And then we talk with the management about, will this be a risk in the future? Um, you know, have they recovered appropriately from injuries? That kind of thing. Yeah. And I guess the the decision ultimately falls on the the playing staff, but uh, it it must be hard because you can't fully quantify risk, can you? There's lots of moving parts and factors. How do you how do you kind of approach those conversations if you think a player's potentially high risk on whether you think a team should you know sign them or not? Because it must be quite hard when it's it's a it's based on clinical and expert opinion, but it's also a judgment call as well, isn't it, into the future? It, you know, it absolutely is. Um, and, and there is, I think, as much as, as much effort as we put into it, and we have classifications and grading scales and injury patterns, and there's been several papers that have studied that looking at, like, what type of injuries sometimes lead to more issues in the future versus ones that don't, you know, more high-risk injuries and low-risk injuries. As much as we, we delve into all these things, we're still not nearly as good as we'd like to be or want to be. And that it is a little bit of a judgment call. And, you know, certainly the management's aware of that. And, you know, we will sometimes say this player might be, you know, might be a little bit high risk and they're still going to take him because they think the player's talent is worth that. And sometimes it proves to be, um, you know, we were too conservative, too worried about it. And there was no problem. Sometimes we're right. And we see players that we sometimes pass on that do have issues in the future. It's a total judgment call. Um, we've tried to get better at it by looking at um, some, of the, some of the papers that have been published and saying that certain injuries do tend to have a long-term effect but ultimately, uh, it's a judgment call. And ultimately, we're not nearly, like I said, not nearly as good as we think we'd like to be. And um, it's it's challenging. It really is. Are the um, kind of ever apparent um, changes in sophistication of technology, is that making that part of the, your role easier? Or is that judgment, you know, maybe a little bit more behind the monitoring of players that we see on a weekly basis? I think where the technology has really helped us is, is return to play you know, I think one thing that I'll say is that the athlete, you know, the modern athlete, the modern day athlete is a lot more receptive to, um, you know, they want to have, they want to preserve the, the longevity of the career. And so they're a lot more receptive to this technology of, and how we use it. And, and for example, if you have an ankle sprain, well, how do you really know you're ready to return to play? Well, in the old days, you know, it's, it's a swelling down. How do you feel? Are you guarding it? And those are a lot, very subjective. Nowadays, we have monitors where we can track how much load you're putting on your right ankle versus your left ankle when you're running around the court. And until we see pretty symmetric load, meaning we see you're not favoring your ankle when you're running and jumping, we can hold back return to play. And that may lead to less, you know, re-injury, so to speak. So, you know, the athlete wants to hear that. And, you know, we have a hamstring injury, for example, and we know what your, you know, your angular velocity was when you were healthy because we saw you in training camp when you were running around. We can say, look, you're still not within 10% of where you were before. You know, that means you're not fully recovered. And those are more objective things where the technology has really helped us. I think the athlete likes hearing that. And, and then when we say, look, we can show you, you're now back to that same speed. Uh, you're loading you know, both legs equally. We think you recovered from that. You, know, you should be good to go. I think it gives them some confidence um, that, they, that they're, 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 they're going to be fine. Yeah, and I guess for them, uh, being able to look at a number is actually quite reassuring at times, isn't it? It, it seems more conclusive than than our discussions about feelings with athletes not that you can neglect either but i think it does it's easier to get that buy-in when you can give somebody what looks like better proof yeah yeah absolutely and again like you know we take into account their subjective issues too so we never anyone that says look i don't quite feel comfortable we say okay then give it more time but you know when they say we look when they tell us they feel comfortable we say does the data support that and we kind of use both together 
and, and, and you're absolutely right. I think they like it's, it's reassuring when it's a little bit more objective uh, data that, that suggests that you've recovered from, from injury. And like I said, we use that a lot uh, for you know, ankle sprains, hamstring injuries, quad injuries, those sort of soft tissue injuries um, that uh, have, you know, in the past been challenging to, to gauge return to play and recovery and also have a likelihood of recurrence, you know. And this doesn't have to be in a rehabilitative context, but is there any um, advancements that you're seeing in technology or medicine at the moment that you're particularly paying attention to or excited about? I think in the, in the well, I would say in the rehab world, I think um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Blood flow restriction has been something that, it, it, you know, we first started using probably five, six years ago. And even now, some of the, I mean, my, in my practice, our group physical therapy does it. It's much more popular. I think the idea of creating this sort of physiological response without load is kind of fascinating. And I, I think, you know, it's been a little bit subjective. We're trying to find some objective data. Um, it's, it's really been helpful. All of my ACL patients that rehab within our facility, we're administering a blood flow restriction early post-operative period. And we're going to see if it helps to lead to a fast return of the quad, you know, girth and strength. Um, and we use it a lot for upper extremity stuff as well. I mean, even after rotator cuff repair, labor repair, we're using it uh, with the pro athletes as well. So that to me is kind of fascinating because this idea that you can build muscle or, or create a physiologic uh, beneficial response without loading the area, I think is really cool um, and, and really helpful, particularly in some of the overuse stuff. I mean, like patella tendonitis, for example, where you you know you need to do some isometric uh, strengthening. You know you need to work on, you know, um, uh, muscle strengthening, but how do you do that if someone's patella tendon sore? This idea of using BFR to do that where you can avoid aggravation of the tissues but still get that response is pretty cool. I think that's really interesting, actually, because some I think sometimes the research can um, uh, almost be like islands where they're not connected because people want to load the tendon um, and BFR isn't very heavy, so it's hard to stress the tendon enough. But if you actually join the dots, people also say that you need to get the muscle strong to influence the tendon. So um, I think your point then is really good, actually, because it actually finally joins the dot between those islands of loading the tendon and actually loading the muscle. And BFR can do it, but people don't immediately think of BFR as a way to influence a tendon directly. That's exactly right. Um, we actually had Luke Hughes on recently, who's a who's a researcher in the UK on it. And I, I found it actually very interesting to hear um, him talking about just how early on you can put BFR on a patient. Um, and he was he was actually discussing the idea of using e-stim and BFR when the person's almost immediately post-op. Yeah, I think doing it early on makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that, you know, you know, quad, you know, if we're using knee surgery, ACL example, ACL, for example, I mean, I think everyone talks about this return of the quad, return of the quad. I think it's really critical. Um, I mean, it's not the only factor, but I think the quicker you can get that quad engaged, um, it's really, really important. I mean, um, Kevin Wilk, who's a very uh, famous physical therapist, uh, who I just, I think he's an amazing guy. He always talks about criteria to advance, uh, to start running. And, you know, that's one of the criteria. And so the, the quicker you can get that turned on, it allows the athlete to kind of progress. And when it lags behind, it can be a frustrating thing um, to deal with. You know, as you know, you know, patella, you know, telephermal pain, for example, has a lot to do with, you know, quad strength and, and, and peri-knee strength. And I think that some of the things that are really frustrating for athletes after ACO construction is that, that soreness they get in front of the knee, particularly when we do, you know, patella tendon grafts. And I think it's directly related to the fact that the quad has just been shut down for so long. And I think that's a hurdle to kind of progression. And I think the quicker you can get the quad engaged in, in quad girth and quad tone, 
um, the more likely they will not suffer some of those setbacks and it'll, it'll be a kind of a smoother recovery. It won't frustrate the athlete as much. Yeah. And uh, with the, when you're in a pro team and with the return to play process, who makes the ultimate decision on the time frame for the return to play? Like what the earliest moment that a player can return? Is it, is that, um, is that your decision or is that a joint decision between you and the therapy department? It's, I would say it's a joint, I would say it's a joint decision. I mean, certainly, you know, when you're talking about operative cases, I think, um, you know, operative cases, we kind of give a timeline of what we feel comfortable. Um, and then, um, but you know, we definitely, it's a, a collaborative effort. Um, what, what we usually do is we sort of say, you know, as surgeons, sometimes we say, all right, can you present the case of how this, of why this athlete's ready to return to play? And that's usually a combination of subjective and a lot of objective data. So, you know, f- for example, our trainer and therapist may say after an ACL reconstruction, okay, you know, doc, let, let me show you what we've been doing. This is how he looks. This is how he's landing. This is his, um, you know, ladder speed when he was at the combine. And this is a lot of speed. Now we can show you he's actually as fast as he was when he entered the NFL. This is how he's landing. We videotape that we've, we've tracked and we've monitored. Him. I mean, they present literally like a case of he's ready to go. And then, you know, we say, okay, you know, we have the easy part. We're like, okay, so he's ready to play. But it's really all the work of the therapists and trainers have gotten it there. So it's a collaborative effort. There are timelines that we feel comfortable as surgeons. Um, and then any point after that timeline, it's just how the athlete looks and feels um, kind of thing. Yeah. Is there any um, is there any kind of resources that you would recommend uh, the non-orthopedic surgeon world? So the therapists, is there any books or courses or references that you would you'd, you'd turn people to to upskill on? Um, becoming better at the post-op care that, that, in a way that would help you as a surgeon? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would say anything written by Kevin Wilk. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that I can think of off the top of my head, but um, yeah, not that I can think of. And um, one of the things I was, I was uh, meaning to ask you earlier, actually, is you do a little bit of consultancy work with um, teams outside of Philadelphia. Is that in a kind of second opinion capacity? How, does, how do you work with teams that aren't uh, geographically near you? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's usually those cases that tra- you know, the head uh, PT or head trainers asked me that, you know, when they come to town, if there's an issue, can we use a resource? You know, um, when they have, like in the baseball world, you know, some of the teams will come to town and say, look, we need someone to be evaluated or we need some resources in the town. Can we, can you be the guy that um, helps us with that? And I'm always sure, I'm like, sure, of course. And sometimes they need me, sometimes they don't. Um, but, you know, they, they sort of asked if, if I could be just a, a resource. And so that's kind of how that works. Got you. So it's as they're passing through town and they need you. Um, exactly. Got you. Yeah, I wondered if it was whether you were kind of mentoring uh, medical departments or acting as a, um, you know, like a, a fresh set of eyes from afar, but I, or whether it was actually just a local thing. Yeah, they're usually, you're usually just more of a, as they're coming through town. And then I'm, I'm also like on a consultant list for the second opinion for NHL. So what a lot of leagues have done is they've you know, made a deal with the Players Association um, that will say, look, if your athlete, you know, has an issue and wants to get a second opinion, you know, to make sure that the, that the second opinion we think is um, going to be from someone who's knowledgeable of the sport, knowledgeable of injuries, can we, can, can we create a list of second opinion doctors? And I think most leagues have that now. So for the NHL, for example, if a player wants a second opinion and is in the region where, you know, Philadelphia, or if, even if they're not, you know, I would, I'm on the list of, of, of doctors that are, can get a second opinion. I kind of sign up for that every year. We have the same thing for uh, and MBA, for example. Uh, and that's been helpful because, you know, some of these, there's, a, there's nuance to taking care of some of these athletes and you just want to make sure that the athlete's getting a, appropriate advice if they go outside the team, which we encourage and have no problem doing. Uh, and the players associations have been supportive of that and think it's a good idea as well. 
it must be really useful because I guess as much as we all have our own personal biases to how we do things, teams and organizations can have the same thing um, as a as a group. I guess when teams come to you and you're not, it's not a team you're directly working with. Um, a fresh set of eyes from a purely neutral perspective must must add very good, uh, clear thinking to their structures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes, you know, as you know, you can be, quote unquote, so close to the situation. I think sometimes you get some fresh set of eyes and they say, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And you go, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. So, yeah, we, we always, I mean, we always encourage. Every time I talk to a player who's injured, I say, look, if I always talk to your agent whenever you want me to. And if they want to send the images to somewhere else, they get opinion. No problem with that. And, and, and we mean it. So, and sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But uh, we, we never, we never have an issue with that at all. Yeah. Well, Chris, I think we're pretty much on the clock there. Um, I'm really grateful you to coming on today and um, sharing your expertise with us. Um, are you, I'm curious, are you active on social media? Are you, is there places where listeners can follow you or look you up? Yeah, I, I, I am, um, I am on, uh, Instagram. I don't, I, I don't, I use it more for, uh, for fun stuff. I'm not doing too much, uh, medical social media, um, you know, which maybe, maybe I should, but, um, um, so unfortunately I don't really talk much about my practice on it. I mean, hearing um, about your many roles, I can't imagine you have a lot of time to commit to, to social media when you're working as much as you are. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, my social media account is usually a photo of one of my kids playing sport. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you ever so much for coming on today. And it's been great to catch up with you and talk. My absolute privilege. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. I'd like to extend my gratitude to Dr. Chris Dodson for coming on the show again today. It was brilliant to chat and exchange views on sports medicine and athlete rehab with him, especially as we don't always get to spend that much time with our sports or orthopedic surgeons, despite our shared concern for athlete care and return to play. So on at least a selfish level, it was a refreshing opportunity and I'm optimistic that some of you, the listeners, also benefited from that one equally. Anything you want to know about the podcast or previous episodes can be found at our website, informperformance.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. Next week's episode, we have Dr. Cheryl Calder, a sports scientist and performance coach who is best known for her expertise improving visual performance in athletes, and most notably some Rugby World Cup winners amongst other athletes or organisations. Thanks for listening to the Informed Performance podcast.